Greetings ladies and mental gents and welcome to this batch video of the narration of the web novel Undead, taken from the website Royal Road. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy, and if you do, please consider supporting the channel. Chapter 33 Imperfect Recall In our empire, loftborn are raised more strictly than in almost any other country in Western Attis. Parents raise their children with two hopes, the first being that they will continue the family line, and the second being that they will receive a brand. Though other cultures abhor the shadow path, no such compunctions hold back the loftborn of Astaris. Right or shadow, it matters not which of the road is taken. Power is sought above all else. As a result, the education of loftborn children is considered barbaric by low-born standards. Though, up until the age of 13, the children are nurtured as future heroes once they come of age. The trials begin. They are abandoned in the wilderness and thrown into the bow dens, in short, subjected to any number of dangerous and deadly challenges. The general perception of half of all the offborn will never reach adulthood is not unfounded, but the true toll is less than that, with perhaps one-fifth of offborn perishing before the age of fourteen. The families all have their methods of awakening brands in their children, and the successful ones hoard their secrets jealousy. These old and powerful loftborn houses have existed since before our nation's conception. It is certain that they accumulate the knowledge of their ancestral branded, stockpiling a wealth of information regarding classes, skills, titles that lay outside the common knowledge. These are the secrets that no lowborn brander will ever have access to, and it is one of the reasons why the power structure in Astaris has remained essentially unchanged throughout the centuries despite the efforts of the triumvirate to weaken the standing of the great houses. For an affiliated branded progression is daunting task, one that requires careful research and more than a little luck. Despite this, nearly all recorded instances of sovereignty in Astaris originate from the unaffiliated branded. Very few sovereigns or potentates have been born in a loftborn house, though plenty have gone on to form their own houses. Why, despite being from a larger concentration of branded in these dynasties, do they fail to generate sovereigns? Why do the low-born branded, who are often struggle to reach the fifth tier, see more instances of this phenomenon? These are some of the questions that we are here to investigate in the following pages. Excerpt from the Heroics Archaic and Modern by Lemon Var. Vanilla slowly dragged the tip of his sword against the stone at his feet, generating a scraping sound. His eyes were half-closed as he observed the figure across of him with a lazy air. Opposite him, his adversary stood warily. By the set of his shoulders, it seemed that the noise unnerved him. Vanilith kept it up, waiting for the figure to make his move. Arimo's wrist twitched, and Vanilith leaned out of the way with a knife that would have driven itself into his eye instead whistled by his ear. He kicked off against the stone and dashed forward, watching his wrists. They were a telling factor. When the telltale twitch came again, he ducked at a second knife sailing overhead. Orinmo made a motion a third time, but when Vanilith moved, nothing came. A feint. At that moment, Orimo launched a fourth in his blind spot. As soon as the white became aware of the feint, he hit the ground rolling, making himself a moving target. Thanks to that, the fourth knife only nicked his shoulder. He sprang back to his feet in a swift motion, sword raised defensively. But Orimo was missing. Vanilith was on high alert, uh, slowly scanning his surroundings. 
He stood on a wide, flat boulder in the northeastern pass where the two of them had originally fought. The standing stone loomed overhead. There were many places the man could hide here. There hadn't been enough time for him to make it to the tree lines, and a few uneven portions of this large boulder jutted out, however. So perhaps he was behind one of the... Something shot out the crack of the stone to his left, a crack that had been too small for anyone to split inside. He had misjudged. Vanilith gritted his teeth, bringing the sword around to parry the dagger wielded by Orimo. As soon as his successfully blocked, he turned his head to the side, eyes down, and knife thudding against the skull an instant later. Vanilith learned by now that given the slightest chance, Orimo would attempt to drive a knife through his eye socket. Fortunately, the white skull was too hard for the small blades to penetrate, hence the decision to take the blow where he could resist it. The dagger, on the other hand, was more than capable of piercing his brain. Vanilith summoned his strength, and pushing it to his sword, he blocked against the dagger and flinging Orimo backwards. With his considerable might, the hunter was sent flying off the boulder, only able to let out a short grunt of surprise. Then... A flash of inspiration struck. While Orimo was in midair, Vandalith launched his short sword after him. The blade hurtled forward, homing unerringly towards his chest. There shouldn't have been any way to counter it. Orimo couldn't dodge without purchase, and he didn't even have the strength or time to deflect or block it. But was Vandalith certain about that? What if the hunter had something up his sleeve? The hunter blurred, literally. The outline grew fuzzy and indistinct, time slowed to a crawl, and the sword, inches from the man's chest, hung motionless in the air. The rest of his surroundings followed suit after Arimo blurring and becoming a less certain. Vanilith grimaced and walked forward, picking up his sword where it hung motionless in the air. He ended the fight with a quick swipe of the blade, the blurred Arimo was decapitated, then uh, he dissolved, turning into millions of indistinct particles that scattered like dust. Vanilith opened his eyes and was met with a sea of dead grasses that carpeted the floor of the cradle. A sour taste had filled his mouth as he realized his failure. His lack of imagination struck again. He had attempted a new strategy in the fight, but he didn't know enough about Orimo and his mental construction of the hunter to respond promptly. Perhaps if he did know more, it wouldn't be such a challenging duel for him. He had built Orimo in a way, resurrecting the hunter that had been in the first fight. Without injuries, Vandalith used all the knowledge he had gathered on the man that during their two fights and through a later conversation with him. Vandalith took away the man's bow and engagement, since Orimo couldn't use it in close quarters and, at range, Vandalith would always lose. Furthermore, he had removed the other distractions of the fight, such as the other hunters and undead as well as the man's daughter, Lei, who Vanleth finally realized had been present at that final moment, playing a part of Orimo's defeat. He discovered a bit of information only recently. He had never seen the girl himself, but painstakingly reconstructed the events of the fight multiple times, made it clear that the presence of someone at the edge and above them had distracted the hunter. Afterwards, Orimo's plea in the grey world made much more sense. Fear for his daughter's life had been the man's last coherent thought, most likely. Vanilith became capable of performing all of these mental feats really recently, after the conceptualization leveled up from two to three. Yesterday, three days after agreeing to work together with Relica, he'd only given up on training conceptualization and was instead focusing on swordsmanship. Amusingly, that was when the skill that he had given up on decided to level up. It had taken him back, 
but he shelved those thoughts and began to test the conceptualization capabilities, leading to his imaginary battles against Orimo. Novel as the training was, it was difficult to tell the effect of using conceptualization like this was. Was he really fighting Orimo at all? For instance, in the battle just now, after launching his blade, Vandalith hadn't known how Orimo would react. Which led to the fake Orimo not knowing how to react himself, which had ended in the fight prematurely. Did he need more information, more spars against the real Orimo? Despite the error, there were still elements that made him feel he was juding the man. Earlier, Orimo had disappeared for a few seconds after hiding in the crack of the stone that appeared to be too small for him. How could a mental construct do something that Vanilith didn't expect? How would Vanilith hide for himself? Surely he had known Orimo was in that crack. Yet, he hadn't. Conceptualization was possibly his most confusing skill. It had a wide range of uses, and Vanilith was becoming more and more aware that he wasn't using it to its full potential. In a fight, a skill like Orimo's intuition seemed more useful. Conceptualization was limited to bioavailable information. If Vanilith didn't know something, he couldn't react to it. Intuition, on the other hand, appeared to operate off unknowns, providing warnings to Orimo when an unforeseen danger arose. The skill wasn't easy to get a handle on. For Vanilith to utilize it correctly, he needed to process all the information and make the correct judgment in all situations. He was a little envious of intuition and the way it allowed Orimo to generally choose a good course of action without overthinking. Perhaps it didn't have the same precision as conceptualization, but it certainly appeared less taxing. Also, since bringing conceptualization to level 3, a memory had been playing in the back of Vanilith's mind, another scene from another time when he was alive. This wasn't the first time something like this had happened. He had been struck by sudden memories long ago before this. Often, the flashbacks came unbidden, but in the case he had actively been pushing the recollection aside, it made him uncomfortable, these scenes from another time. The emotions that they conjured up within him were alien, like those of some exotic animal. He could understand them, perhaps, but he couldn't empathize with them. It was just too distant from his current self. He might have continued ignoring this memory, but as he continued to ponder his skill, the memory only became more prominent. Vanilith closed his eyes, stilling his thoughts and his mind's eye. He walked along the path in a large garden by a woman's side. The two of them appeared to be in the middle of a conversation. Student of mine, you don't have the talent for this path, the woman said. You're a spell warden with more emphasis on the spell than the warden. Even with that old monster training, you won't ever become a master with the blade. I may not be a warrior myself, but I have seen enough of them for me to make this judgment. If you keep up with this fruitless hope, an ancient rank will always be out of reach. Templar, as a divided class like that simply isn't suited for you. You would make an outstanding sage, or perhaps a thermitage, but I would be more than happy to accept you as an apprentice should you choose one of these two classes. Why so fixated on Templar? Why not focus on what you have a talent for and leave the swordplay to the knights? Letaya knows that we have enough of them running around already. His vision shifted to the side, giving him a look at the person lecturing him. Vanilith realized that he was seeing the scene through the eyes of the younger version of himself. Like his other memories, he was taller than he had been in his last memory, however. Still not fully grown. 
The woman was some kind of indeterminal age. Her smooth face and free of lines, but traces of silver had worked their way into her dark hair. She wore a black scholar's robe and held a large scroll under one arm. She turned to him, eyes concerned. These words hurt, she said. I can remember that much from you, but words that hurt are often what we need to hear the most. Think about it from the different perspective, Vanilith. In the past two hundred years, thousands of young men and women have attempted to emulate the Illuminator, and even with the sovereign in question searching for his inheritor, none have yet to succeed. Your attempt to recreate the journey of the Azad Tyrant is an even higher hurdle than his, as the later divides of his path was long ago. But even if he were here to aid you, the mighty do not become strong because they have followed footsteps of another. You must forge your own destiny. The boy bit his lip. It isn't like that. I'm not, um, not trying to become a great hero or anything. Then why persist in this daydream? She asked, sounding honestly perplexed. That, that doesn't matter. Please, let's forget about this. Can we continue to talk about my skill? The woman stared down at him for a while longer. Lady Idavana, the skill I unlocked this morning, conceptualization. She sighed, closing her eyes. Very well, I can see that you won't be convinced so easily. Frankly, when you came to me to tell me that you had gained a new skill, I was shocked. Of all the known perception skills, it is amongst the most useful for a mage. Despite the value, very few even gain it. Many of my colleagues aren't even aware of its existence. The skill, along with your considerable missed reserves, resulted in my attempts to sway you. Forgive me for that. It isn't the place of a teacher to control the class of his students. That's all right. Uh, I can tell you it, it wasn't only out of worry, he politely responded. So, it's a rare skill then. He couldn't quite manage to keep this excitement from his voice. Indeed, not only is it a rare skill, but it is a unique in its function. Though it is called a perception skill earlier, that isn't quite right, functionally. That is the role that it performs, but it doesn't heighten any of your senses. It is a mental skill which... Um, as you know, is the rarest sort. It contains both a passive and an active component. Passively, it gathers information available and combines it, improving your awareness of your surroundings at a foundational level. It won't have much effect. You might notice yourself unconsciously avoiding things that might trip you up, or when you lose a small object, you might locate it more easily. These passive components is, of course, limited by your base perceptions. It'll not allow you to hear anything too faint for your ears or let you see in the dark. It is an all-round skill with no weaknesses, but no true strengths of its own. The true value of this passive component comes when, if you receive a second sensory skill. A second skill? That's really difficult to do, right? From what I've heard. Right. It is uncommon for Brandon to receive two perception skills. Most only ever obtain one. But this isn't some ingrained rule of the world. It is only the result of Branded's over-reliance. What do you mean? Branded tend to become reliant on the first perception skill that they gain, pushing aside the weaker senses in favor of having a strong one. If you can see through walls, would you waste your time placing your ears against the door and listening for someone on the other side? This isn't merely a psychological phenomenon. In many cases, even when branded are aware of their over-reliance, they cannot do anything about it, since most sensory skills are passive in nature. 
The brand had continued to receive information fed to them by the skill and cannot ignore it or train up another sense. Fortunately for you, conceptualization does not have this problem. It is a skill that effectively strengthens all of your senses without strengthening any of them. Huh? He blurted out, unable to help himself. Why is that fortunate? You can't see by now because it places you in a new baseline. You can think of yourself as having no sensory skill yet. It should just be as easy or even easier for you to gain a second skill. Wow. You were working towards a different skill when you received conceptualization, right? Was it something like a terima step? Ripple. Ah, yes, a favorite of knights for use in its battlefield. Ripple is another all-rounder, much like conceptualization, so I can see why you accidentally attained conceptualization instead. The two schools would pair nicely, though. I believe something with more specificity would serve you better. Well, it isn't my place. There are other teachers you can access who will point you in the correct direction. The conversation fell into a slight lull. Lady Edivana? Yes? What about the active component? You only explained the passive one. The two of them reached the end of the garden path and the scholarly woman approached the stone table and had been built under the roof of the patio. She placed her scroll on the table, unfolded, and placing the weight stones on the edges to hold it open. The young vanilla's eyes glanced over it, but only saw the thick wall of symbols in some language he did not recognize. There must have been thousands of ruins crammed onto the surface of the parchment. Edivana spoke. Memory, that is the active component. Passively, conceptualization signals a great increase in awareness, but the active ability is what makes it so desirable for majors. If you can train it to higher levels, the skill will give you an almost perfect memory of things. You can see why a spellcaster might want it, yes? For those whose knowledge is the greatest source of their power, conceptualization is a boon. I hope that you'll describe to me in great detail what your thought process was when you received the skill. It may already be too late for me to secure it myself, but recording the process behind the acquisition of such a rare skill isn't a chance that comes around every day. From somewhere in her voluminous robes, she retrieved a smaller scroll along with a quill, placing the two objects on the table by the first parchment. It seemed that she was preparing to document Vanilith's experience, before that, he interjected, aren't there other skills that do the same thing as this one? I've heard of skills that give people perfect memories before. It shouldn't be all that rare, right? Edivana shook her head. No two skills operate exactly the same. There are other memory-related skills, but altering one's mental state is always a risky prospect. Skills that affect the mind are not matters to be taken lightly. They have byproducts, some going as far to drastically change the personality of their users. Conceptualization simply has fewer of these side effects than most. Vandalith frowned. She said that it had fewer side effects, not none. What are then? The explanation sounded from behind him. Vandalith jumped, surprised. Upon seeing the voice, however, he let out his head drop. How did you find me this time? He muttered. You shouldn't keep bothering Lady Edivana outside your scheduled sessions. The speaker continued. She has our own work to take care of, you know. Oh, it's no trouble, Lady Edivana, speaking up for Vanilith. The scholar and teacher Harves and me have both agreed that helping young Lord Strix is a task worthy of some merit. He was about to describe to me the acquisition of his most recent skill. Hmm, is that right? The voice said. What skill is it? I didn't hear about this. 
The footsteps sounded out as the speaker approached. The boy turned and resigned look on his face. The world blurred as he did, losing focus, and before he could fully face the speaker, he sank into blackness. Vandalus' eyes shot open and he whirled around, half expecting to see the speaker. Of course, all he met his gaze was a giant stone that he'd been resting against. He was back in the cradle, of course, in his standard meditation spot. The memory proved quite informative, but what happened to get there at the end? His memories hadn't ended like that before. He replayed the scene without leaving a single detail, but he couldn't see the speaker. The memory darkened too quickly and he couldn't hold it together. His brooding was interrupted when the sound of pounding feet made him look up. Hanamu darted around the boulder, eyes wide. What is it? Vandaloo asked, instantly alert. The ghoul said nothing, only pointing to the sky. Vandaloo followed his gaze, peering upwards. At first, he was unsure what he was meant to see. Then he saw movement. Birds. There were several of these creatures circling far overhead. No, wait. There was something strange about them. Anamu answered the question before he had a chance to ask it, mixing up his spirit speech with his excitement. Arimu says that they are griffins, dangerous that they are here. He wants you to back a camp, quick. End of chapter. Chapter number 34, Ash in Their Wake Countless monsters inhabit the vast expanse of the Divide. Despite the number of known species surpassing 100, and with an estimated number reaching the thousands, half of the total monster population is believed to come from two monster species, griffins or capricoro. Both of these species live in groups, relying on the strength of their numbers to contest against the more individually powerful monsters that roam the wilderness. They are not apex predators, but they are one of the more common beasts that the explorer might encounter and thus it is important to understand how to avoid them. Griffins are the first species of note for any of the explorers, as they are one of the simplest monster species to avoid, and amongst the most dangerous when these warning signs are ignored. Individually, a griffin is a tier 2 greater threat, but remember that they travel and hunt in groups numbering anywhere from 2 to 6 griffins. Be aware that while most griffins are in the tier 2 threat range, some individuals are stronger, reaching the level of a lesser or standard tier 3 threats. Large nests of them have been known to contain individuals that are ranked tier 4 threat as level. The appearance of a griffin in a combination of an eagle or a feline, with the front portion resembling an eagle and the back portion a feline, they have three pairs of limbs, the back two pairs being those of a predatory cat, and the front two, the talons of an eagle. Griffins possess two pairs of wings. Most griffins are between 7 and 13 feet long, with several wingspans often surpassing 20 feet in length. Exceptions to these size rules always exist. Their coloration is a mix of brown, white, and gold. A group of griffins is known as a convocation, and the size of these convocations range anywhere between two and several dozen monsters. A convocation is a territorial group, and once they stake their home, members rarely range out beyond its borders. For a small convocation of ten or fewer griffins, this territory may only consist of one or two valleys and their associated peaks. But the larger convocations can envelop much wider swaths of land. Griffins build their nests at a high altitude, descending to drink, hunt, and patrol the territory. 
Thanks to their unique build, they are a threat both on the ground and in the air. Though, griffins are ambush predators who rarely commit to prolonged engagements on the ground. When defending their territory against rival monsters and humans, however, they often fight to the death. Smell is an indicator that you are entering a territory of a convocation. Griffins leave their droppings around the perimeter of their territory to ward off other monsters. Their leavings have a distinct musky odor, accompanied by the scent of rotting meat. If you encounter this aroma, turn back immediately. This is often the only warning sign that you get. Excerpt from The Dangers of the Divine by Lerner Konmara Manolith followed Anamu back to the cottage, keeping an eye on the sky the whole time. The monsters were so high that they only appeared to be black specks. The only thing giving them away was their wings. Each of the griffins had four of them, two at the front and two at the rear. They didn't appear to be hostile, but their presence must have signaled something in Orimo. They entered the camp to find the ghouls arrayed in something resembling a battle formation. In the five days since the battle with the hunters, 150 lesser ghouls had been rounded up from all over the valley, and seeing them all assembled like this made for an impressive sight. At least it did until Vanilith remembered how weak and unevolved undead were. By the entrance of the cottage should Iokina... She was surveying the undead, paying only occasional attention to the griffins above, apparently trusting Orimo with that task. Around her were her shamblers, numbering seven strong. They were only six of them the other day, so the seventh must have been added recently. He approached Orimo, who stood at the front, a strung blongbow hanging off his shoulder. He squinted his eyes and observed the circling monsters, as if trying to figure out their intentions. Shortly... The sound of crunching grass from behind him alerted him that Vanilith and Kalakai were joined up. All four main fighters had gathered. What is the situation? Vanilith asked. Arimo replied, I'm not sure. This isn't supposed to happen. What do you mean, supposed to? They're monsters, yes. They aren't for food, as we do. They must be looking for prey. Arimo laughed without taking his eyes off the griffins. We don't know much about us, do you? Not us, but the children of the mountain. Vanilith didn't reply. We have a history with the griffins, he said. It's a bit complicated, but you can think of it as an agreement between people living here and those beasts. They are our protectors. They keep the stronger monsters away, but they don't usually descend into the valley, and they certainly don't circle like that normally. They're investigating us. The sound of a door slamming open and ended the conversation, and Relica came striding up. She was, uh, different. She had fixed her unkempt hair, drying down her back in a long braid. Her frayed robe was gone, a set of light armor in its place, providing far better protection than Vanilith's own gear. Mismashed animal hides which he had scavenged from the dead hunters. A leather caress protecting her torso, greaves and van braces covered her legs and arms, while pads defended her knees and elbows. She also bore a pair of sturdy leather gauntlets, plated and partial in metal, making her hands the most protected part of her body. A sword was sheathed at her waist, and she looked ready to use it. Her eyes, armor, and bearing bestowed on her an aura of purpose. As she strode through the fields towards them, Vanilith couldn't help but notice that, despite all her upgrades, her feet remained bare. Strange, with so much armor, for her feet to not be protected. She asked Orimo a question in Yaranese, and he gave a short reply. 
He needed to learn that language if Radica was going to continue using it. Not every ghoul could engage in spirit speech, though they were all capable of at least understanding it. Radica numbered amongst the non-speakers. She understood spirit speech, but she couldn't force her world into words the way that Vanilleth, Oromo, Anamu, and Lyokina could. He thought it strange, since her strength relied on giving orders. Radica and Orimo continued to speak in an incomprehensible tongue, searching for a translator. The white's eyes settled on the peons. He didn't trust Anamu to be any good, but seeking Kalakai didn't speak at all. He gave in and just gestured to the juvenile ghoul. Yes, master, Anamu asked. Vanilith explained what he wanted. The ghoul's two wide mouth twitched and he tentatively began to translate, frowning in concentration. Um... The mistress, she, she, she was asking if the ghouls are ready to move out. She says it's bad to stay here longer. Arimo, he's saying that he agrees. He wants to know where she wishes to go. West, she says. We're going west. Then Arimo says that he's up high west. There is a uh, pact broker. We might stop on the way. Mistress thinks it's a good idea, and we should collect feathers while we're here. And Arimo is not certain about this. He continued translating, but the conversation had moved into a territory of supposition and references obscure enough that even Anamu had no idea what they were talking about. So Vanilith stopped him. The ghoul was as poor a translator as he had expected, but a few things stood out to him. Pact broker probably referred to one who mediated between the people and the griffins. Was this an inhabitant of the valley? No. All the people were days killed. He lived in the high west, wherever that was, probably in the mountains. But why were they going to collect feathers? Something occurred to Vanleth as he renumerated their conversation and turned to Anamu. You call her Relica mistress, correct? Anamu nodded. Don't you do that any longer. She is not your mistress. Call her by her name. You answer only to me. Is that understood? Um, yes, yes, master. Vanilith looked away, not wholly satisfied that the ghoul got it. He could sense, though, through his connection with Anamu that Radica held no sway over him, so it irked him to see the creature acting so subserviently. Worse, he didn't understand why it bothered him so much, which only resulted in him getting more annoyed. He recognized the spiral of what it was. Thankfully, he calmed himself down, remembering Oromo's words from the other day. He couldn't let a brand rule his thoughts. The conversation ended while Vanilith was still lost in thought. Redica left Oromo's side and snapped out a string of commands and involved ghouls began moving in response. The two of them, Alan had pulled cart in front of them, and many more brought out chests from a cottage loading the cart. Vanilith strode up to the necromancer. I shall take up the frontal position in our marching column alongside Oromo, he said. Redica raised an eyebrow. You understand my conversation with him? She didn't know that he had a translator, but he didn't correct this misconception. I inferred, he replied, gesturing to the bustling camp. Hmm, yes, you may join Oromo, but in that case, may I have your peon serve as rear guard? We need strong fighters covering our tails. That's fine by me. A short silence ensued as they waited for the ghouls to assemble. He nodded to the griffins overhead. Why are they acting only now? It was an earlier than they had planned to leave, but only by a few days. Most of the undead had been gathered and trained to understand basic orders, so at least they weren't caught on the back foot. 
I can't be certain, but, uh, Relica smiled, I expect it has something to do with the fact that I turned this entire valley into a miasmic waste. Ah, how much should have been obvious in hindsight. Will there be a fight? No, she said, not if everything goes according to plan, but I don't know exactly why the Griftons are acting like this. Plan for the worst. Vanilith eyed the monsters again. They appeared like nothing more than birds at a distance, but if they were enough to drive Ridlica from the valley, then they deserved the titles as monsters. They departed within five minutes, heading west along the river, towards the lakeside of Boilung. The Vanilith watched with an interest as Orimo assembled the ghouls, placing each of them in a specific positions within the column. Those with Radica's supplies were at the center, guarded only by a few evolved ghouls. The weaker undead made up the bulk of the center. Most of the evolved ghouls, numbering roughly twenty-five in total, were concentrated at the front and the rear of the column. Though, at the tail end behind Karakai and Animu, there was another evolved. Arimo had placed a smattering of lesser ghouls. These were bait, an intentional display of weakness. The lesser ghouls trailing along behind would hopefully be targeted first if the griffins decided to attack their forces, giving the evolved soldiers nearby a chance to strike back. They like to die from the sky, you see, and they target while the stragglers first, said Arimo, who was marching in front of the column with Vanilith. Griffins are fast, silent, and deadly. Plus, they're the size of a house. Facing an attack like that, it doesn't matter if it's an evolved or not. That ghoul is done for. Can we defeat them? Vandalith asked. Arimo grunted. Three griffins aren't a problem. Well, no, they are. If they got a jump on us, they'd tear through our ghouls like an arrow through dead leaves. But they aren't trying to hide. I have a bead on them, and I could drop one of them for sure before they reached us. Maybe two, or all three, if they're slow about it. But I hope that I don't have to. Vanilith glanced at him. That didn't sound like the hunter he knew. What had him so antsy? The griffins had followed them from the cottage, lending certainty to the fact that they were being monitored. Vanilith squinted, spotting the shape joined the others in the distance. A fourth griffin had reinforced their ranks, and the circle of the monsters formed overhead expanded to compensate. Arimo cursed. Four is a little worse than three, but that's nothing compared to bringing an entire convocation down on our heads. He yelled out something in Yerenese, and after a word of affirmative from Radica in the middle of the column, he sped up. The ghouls kept pace, half running, half shambling, some of the lessers even falling over. Before they reached Bowling, they veered off to the river, hanging a right along the dirt path that led up into the mountains. As they left the cradle behind, Vanilith spared the valley below a glance. The brown and dead basin was speckled with greys and blacks, and not a single hint of green. A blot on the plains marked the boulder of the sheltered relica's hut. It looked tiny from this vantage point. Other than that, all three settlements along the river were visible. Soon, ruins were the only sign that people had once lived here. This valley was his birthplace. It was where he'd hunted, where he devoured and grew from a mindless undead to a white. He and the others had taken this place for all that it was worth, leaving bones and ash in their wake. There was nothing left for him here, no more room to grow. As he turned his back to the cradle, he realized that he might never return. Nevertheless, there was no shred of sentimentality within him. He would move on to greater things. That was the way of the world. 
After five hours of climbing an increasingly steep incline, they reached what appeared to be their destination, a plateau of rock a quarter of a mile across and several miles long. It was in the shape of a rough crescent, partially encircling the crater below. At the end was the opposite end of the plateau, a wall of unsurpassable rock that climbed up into dizzying heights that cut off their route. As far as they climbed, there always seemed to be something higher, the mountains all around looking just as tall as ever. Vanilith first noticed about this place wall was the smell. Even the winds did not disperse the pungent odor here. Dung and rotting flesh mixed, telling him that this place was known for the presence of many beasts. He touched the pommel of his sword, but Orimo placed a hand on his shoulder. It's fine. This place is a plateau of remembrance, he said. You're smelling the griffins. Don't worry, they only come down here at the dawn and dusk. They'll leave us be as long as we move past quickly. He flicked his eyes up, noting the fifth griffin circling above. Or so I hope. They continued, Arimo's assurance doing little to quell the sensation of danger. Mingled with excitement, Vanilith felt rising in his chest. This was a place frequented by some monsters that they were fleeing from. Something was stirring. The rocky plateau felt very flat, and not plant life existed on it save for the thin film of dead-looking moss. As they progressed, various bits of debris appeared. Fragments of bone, piles of dung, and feathers were strewn about in random. The feathers lay in puddles or were wedged between rocks, such as the wind didn't carry them away. They were mostly brown and white, and occasionally bright yellow, orange, and red one might appear. Jewels amidst coal. These vivid feathers were smaller and softer than the brown-white ones, and the sight of them was familiar to Banalith. After a moment, he realized why. The brightly colored feathers that littered the plateau were the same ones that once decorated the headdresses of the hunters. Turning to Marimo, he asked, You use griffin feathers for your headpieces? The hunter shot him a sidewise glance. So you noticed? Yes, our hunting bonnets were decorated with the feathers of griffin fledglings. The plumage is brighter, and the adults cherish their offspring. It is said that we children of the mountain earned the trust of the griffins many generations ago, and a great shaman worked a great magic binding our two species. That was when the young griffins began to descend the mountain peaks, offering us their feathers. There were very few places in the world where you can see griffin fledglings. They are fiercely protected, and most usually never leave their nests until they become adults. This is one of the few places that they will come. Vanilla thought about these words for a moment, and then asked, The magical pact, does it still hold? Are you and the other children of the mountain bound to the griffins after becoming ghouls? Arimo was silent for a moment before speaking. I don't know if the magic still holds, or even if the pact still exists at all. If I did, I never felt it. I'm no shaman. I wore the bonnet, and I respected the traditions of our people, and that was all. The griffins of the cradle never attacked us, though we still had encounters with griffins outside of this convocation. He sighed. The feathers are supposed to show that we continue to uphold our responsibilities. We came here to the Western Crown in part because Mistress Ranica wished to use to retrieve the feathers. She thinks they've fooled the griffins long enough for us to make an escape from their territory. Vanilith glanced back at the column. At some point, the order had been given out, and the ghouls were collecting bright feathers and sticking them in their hair, or stuffing them into the collars of their ragged shirts and their belts. It seemed a flimsy protection to him. But when Orimo offered him an orange feather, 
he tucked it behind his ear all the same. A thought occurred to him. This magical compact between the humans and the griffins, if it existed, was it possibly anything like the pact shared between Oromo? If the griffins offer you protection, what do you give them in return? Bandleth asked. Oromo bent down, picking up a white shard of bone and holding it between two fingers. Many of the bones on the plateau appeared to be those of fish or small animals, but some did not. A shard he'd picked up came from a large creature. Food... Amongst other things, mostly we bring them fish and the occasional goat or sheep. Most important to our pact, however, is us. We bring our dead here, preparing them so that they may be consumed by the griffins. It is one of our most ancient rites, our funeral of the open sky. It's our way of returning our flesh to Mother Sky. Our souls go to Father Mountain, and we serve as nourishment for the sky's creatures, just as she nourishes us with her light and rain." Vandaleth observed the pile of dung that sat in the ground nearby. Returning to the sky, indeed. A sensible approach, he said, keeping those thoughts to himself. Little goes to waste. He meant it. There was something tidy about the process. The weak offered up in flesh to the strong, receiving protection in return. The lengths that humans went to for survival was amusingly extensive. One of my worries, said Oromo with a grin, is that the griffins will realize that we are dead and think that we have come to present ourselves as the lunch. Then we will fight them. Oromo didn't respond to that. The number of griffins had grown to six. As they approached the end of the plateau, a cleft in the stone well appeared before them. A cave? No, there was a stone door set deep into the arch. This was a home that someone had built into the mountainside. This was a abode of the undertaker, said Oromo, the one who maintains the pact and performs the funerary rites. I'm going to go check on something. Wait here. He left his companion behind and went to the door, knocking twice. He waited patiently, but no answer came. He turned back, shaking his head. A muted curse made Vandalith glance over his shoulder. Redica had approached him at some point. Her footfalls entirely silent. Now she bore a grimace. Follow me, she said to Vandalith and strode forward without waiting for a response. He did so, his curiosity getting the better of him. Arimo opened the door for them and swung it open in a well-oiled hinges. It was unlocked. No, it had no lock in the first place. He entered the dwelling to find that there was a smaller than expected, tinier than even the smallest hut in one of the villages. It was a cave, crudely chiseled from the solid stone. It consisted of a single room with a cupboard and one person table and a straw mat for the bed. His eyes fell upon the mat on which lay a corpse. It was an ancient-looking man covered in wrinkles and sharp angles. He had shriveled to almost nothing, appearing more skeletal than made of flesh. He had died of starvation. His mouth was agape and his eyelids had sunk back into his skull, making him appear half-skeleton already. He couldn't have been dead for that long, as he hadn't begun to smell. However, there was another scent in the room. Not a cacay, but in some ways it was familiar. Frowning, he observed the rest of the home. Some holes had been cut into the wall, likely for ventilation, but there was nothing else in the way of adornment. On the table, there were a few unrecognizable lumps of organic matter. Was it food? If so, it had become inedible long ago. Relica went straight to the cupboard, flinging it open and revealing the contents inside. 
A foul stench poured out to greet her, and the necromancer reached inside, retrieving a sack that might have once held the vegetables. She turned it out onto the floor, and from within spilled a goopy black mess. She took a step back to avoid the splatter. This contradicted the state of the corpse. The inhabitant of this home was freshly dead, but the state of his cupboard made it seem like he'd been dead for weeks. A moment of silence passed in the tiny cave home before Relica spoke contemplatively. I've made a mistake, she said. I've had my doubts, but perhaps I should have confirmed this earlier. What mistake is that? It happened when we ended the Deathstone ritual. The ritual was supposed to be contained solely within the vanny. Nothing should have exceeded the borders of the cradle. It took me nearly a week after Arimo's party left to stake out the area of effect myself, so I know for a fact that this place is well outside of its perimeter. Yet my asthma reached this place when you took the Deathstone into your body. It did not absorb all of the miasma and that generated by the ritual as it should have. The sheer volume of it proved too great, perhaps, which is why I failed to channel it back into the stone. Vanilith frowned. He recalled the black, swirling storm around a cottage, where he had fought with the spectres of the village. Then he thought of the smaller cyclone within him. It seemed obvious that he couldn't absorb the entire storm. The remainder then leaked out into the surrounding regions, she continued. I made note of it when we left to fight the hunters. What should have been a perfect line of delineation was instead more of a gradual corruption of the surroundings. Relica gestured to the mess on the floor. That is the result of unrestrained miasma. On organics, miasma has a number of aspects, but uh, rot is... Uh, she cut off and suddenly as if lightning struck. Then, without waiting for him, she took off, sprinting out of the home as fast as her feet could carry her. She practically disappeared from sight. He heard her shouting commands in Yerenese, and when he exited the home afterwards, he saw Orimo and Ayakina surprised, but in motion. They were shuffling around the troops, moving them into a marching column and into a battle formation. He glanced up at the sky. A seventh griffin had appeared. At first, he had thought no idea of Relica had realized, but as Vandalith joined with the peons, he began drawing connections. The Undertaker had starved. Either that, or the Miasma had sucked the life out of him somehow, like it did the plants. If the corpse was back in their home was something vital to the cradles Griffin's pact, then perhaps his death signified a breakdown in relations. No, that couldn't be right. If that were the case, Radica would have been leapt into action as soon as she learned of the Undertaker perished. Whatever role the man fulfilled, his death alone wasn't enough for the Griffins to act like this. She had realized something else, and whatever it was, it was catastrophic. What would cause the Griffins to attack them? Then he realized this was the worst place that they could have come. The griffins were hungry, perhaps even starving. Their food supply was destroyed by Redeka's wild miasma. And now they decided to wander up on the plateau of remembrance, the griffins' traditional dinner plate. Harimo's worry from earlier was proving itself well-founded. But as it turned out, this alone wasn't the entire truth. After a minute, Arimo shouted, something was happening with the griffins. It wasn't obvious at first, but by straining his eyes, he could see that one of the figures was growing larger and descending. It was only one, not all seven of them. The other six remained in the lofty positions. That might have been the only reason Redeka ordered Arimo to stand down, who had been prepared to shoot the monster. The two hundred undead waited, all poised for combat as the griffin neared. 
The creature plummeted to the ground, unfurling its fall wings and last second and drastically reduced its speed, gliding to a short distance before landing before the assembly. What captured Vanilith's attention was not the sight of the massive beast, easily over ten feet long and taller than himself. It wasn't the six limbs that cracked the stone beneath as it slammed into the ground either. It wasn't the nearly golden mane of the feathers encircled the griffin's neck, or even the overpowering scent of the warned him of imminent danger. Instead, it was the small object that it carried in its beak that drew Vanilith's focus. The griffin dropped the object not twenty feet from Renica, then stared at her as if waiting for some reply. Vanilith noted that Orima, who had slightly lowered his bow after landing at distance, was once again lifting it, and Renica wasn't stopping him. Vanilith came to the front, wary of the sudden change by the beast. He reached Radica's side where he could get a better look at the thing lying on the ground. It was the size of a large dock, but the pile with slightly soggy feathers was no pet. It was, or it had been, a creature. It was mostly orange with several yellow patches popping up here and there. A ring of red circle that must have been its neck, most revealing were its eyes, too small, glassy beads that stared vacantly into the distance. The large griffin began pacing back and forth, tension roiled in the monster's waves. Another aspect of miasma, whispered Radica, is sickness. The young and elderly are especially susceptible. The griffin screeched, and the sound it emitted was so powerful that a gust of wind blowing the hair back wasn't entirely imagined. End of chapter and that, my friends, is the end of this video. I hope that you enjoyed. If you did, please consider supporting the channel. There are numerous links down below. The easiest way would be to share this video and this channel to as many people as possible to help this channel grow. Your support is very much appreciated. And I will see you all in the next video. Cheers.